The book of Acts is a continuing book, I believe. I don't really think it ends with chapter 28. I think the Holy Spirit meant for it to have several chapters added to it. And that's why I don't like the name the Acts of the Apostles, but I would title it the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles and through disciples and through men and women who trust him throughout all of history. It doesn't have to be a thing that ends. The things that were done in the book of Acts, many of them are going on today. And some of you are actually seeing them. And I like the title, Acts, or Actions. It's not the book of theories, the book of ideas. It's the book of Acts. There's action all the way through it. Great theologian who saw the need for practical action in the Christian life named Helmut Thielicke once said, there are some theologians who, if they saw two doors, one marked heaven and the other marked discussions on heaven, would choose the second door. The book of Acts is filled with people who dared to be filled with the Spirit and do what Jesus wanted them to do. There's a quote by John Wesley that I've shared with you before. I want to remind it to you tonight. He said, if I had 300 men who feared nothing but God, hated nothing but sin, and were determined to know nothing among men but Jesus Christ and Him crucified, then I would set the world on fire. Just give me some men who hate nothing but sin, love nothing but God, and know nothing but Christ crucified, and I'll change this world. And look at Jesus. He did it with twelve. People who are just sold out for the Lord. doesn't take really that many. Sometimes we think, well, we have to have more people to do it. No, you don't. Just a few faithful people. Now, there are probably a couple reasons why we have more theories and ideas today than acts. And I think number one is that not all Christians believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. But there's got to be something else. And the Christian world is rapidly turning away from the simplicity of preaching the gospel. And we feel like we have to embellish it with other things. In fact, some people almost get down on just preaching the gospel. Well, you know, these Christians who just preach the gospel and that's it. Well, yes, I think that once you preach the gospel that you need to do other things and practically show love. That's what Acts is all about. But you can't do anything significantly until the gospel is preached, or at least in and with whatever you're doing, the gospel needs to be preached. If you're just doing social activity, apart from sharing the reason behind it and the motivations that you love Jesus and that he came to set sinners free, then it's really not doing much good, except temporarily withstalling that person's judgment. And number two, one of the big reasons why many Christians aren't active in their faith, number one, is they don't believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. And secondly, there is a tendency today to turn inward. There's a massive turning inward that people have. And there's this idea that I have to get it all together before I'm of any value to anyone else. I've got problems, you see. And I've got to get counseling for all of my hang-ups and all of my problems. And I need to up my value, my awareness, my esteem. 
so that I will be useful to other people. And so there's this introvertedness, this turning inward. And so we go, we get some help, we find we have a lot of problems. We get two of them taken care of, and then we find we have another problem, and then we get that taken care of, and oh, there's more. Well, Peter believed in the sufficiency of Scripture because he quotes it all the time in this chapter. And secondly, he had personal problems all through his life, and that didn't keep him from doing it. I mean, let's face it. When it came to Peter's personal life, the guy was goofed up. He was impetuous. He was insecure. He said stupid things. He did a lot of dumb things. Even after he was filled with the Spirit, he was still Peter. But that did not keep him from acting out what Jesus told him to do. He wasn't turning inward. He was turning outward. And somebody could have said, well, you know, Peter, you need to up your self-awareness. You have a problem with self-esteem. He probably would have quoted what Paul told him. That we should esteem others better than ourselves. And that there's needs out there. And rather than turning inward and just me being fed or me being changed, I want to be a catalyst also to change the world. And so away he went. Now in the sermon here, we're speaking about the proofs, or Peter was telling the Jews the proofs of the Messiah. It was a Jewish audience. They believed in the concept of the Messiah, but they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so in verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope, because you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God swore an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, that he would raise up the Christ, or the Messiah, the anointed, to sit on the throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection. That his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, which we are all witnesses. What he is trying to show them is why Jesus Christ is their Messiah and their Lord. Now, a little background on Judaism. The Jewish mindset always anticipated the Messiah coming. Now, the word Messiah is the same word as Christ, or Christos in Greek, Mashiach in Hebrew. It simply means one who is anointed. In the Old Testament, there were kings who were anointed. And when they would anoint people, you know how today we have the anointing with oil, and we tend to take a little drop of oil and dap it on somebody? They poured 
a horn full of oil from the top of the head and it ran down the beard, the face and all down the body. The clothes was drenched in oil. And so they would take the king down to the pool of Siloam and they'd pour oil all over his body. Some of the prophets were anointed. The priests were anointed by God for special service. They were marked out by God for a specific work and they had an anointing on them. Now, throughout Jewish history, as they went from one bad time to another bad time, there emerged from the Scriptures, from the mind of God, the idea that one day a person would come to the earth who would be the special Messiah. Not a king, per se. Not a prophet, per se. Not a priest. But sort of one who tied all those offices together, who would reign in righteousness, come from David's lineage, and would reign geopolitically upon the earth, with Israel as the center. And the Jews always anticipated that. Someday the Messiah will come. And as times got worse and worse, more and more they wanted the Messiah. In fact, 150 years before Jesus came, there started this deep, intense longing and crying out for the Messiah. It was in their literature. It was in their music. Now, by the time Christ did come, there was a universal Jewish expectation that the Messiah is going to come soon. Now, what the Jews expected was a warrior, an army man, someone who would rise up and take the reins of power and rid Israel of all of the foreign rulers that were oppressing her, break the yoke of oppression, and make the Jews rise to the top of world power. That's the person they were looking for. It was so high, the expectation of the Messiah at the time of Jesus, that when Jesus finally comes on the scene and says, the kingdom of God is at hand, you can imagine what that did inside to the average Jewish person who was listening. Their hopes soared. It's at hand. It's near. The kingdom of God. You mean this is it? They'd seen John the Baptist. They'd seen the miracles of Jesus. People were forming an opinion that perhaps this is the sent out one, the Messiah. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they looked to him. And remember, there was one time when they tried to by force take him and make him a king because they believed he was the Messiah. That, by the way, is the reason why Jesus, once certain individuals found out he was the Messiah, he said, keep it quiet. Ever read that in the Gospels? You wonder now, why on earth would he tell them to keep it quiet? You'd think he'd say, spread the good news. No, he said, keep it quiet. Don't tell anyone that I'm the Son of God, the Messiah. Now, there came a time when he told them to publish it, but there was a period during his ministry when he said, keep your mouth shut, don't tell people I'm the Messiah yet, because their expectation is different from the way the Messiah was prophesied that he would come. They're expecting this great warrior who's going to be very zealous and aggressive and wipe everybody out. And he came to portray the servant king. Now, this was all new to the average Jew. So Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when they see the speaking in tongues, the fire, the wind, and they say, what is this? Are they drunk with wine? Peter said, no. This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel, who said, in the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. He goes through saying that the Holy Spirit is poured out. And it opens the door for him to show them 
why Jesus is their Messiah promised in the Scriptures. And he has several proofs. Number one, the works that Jesus did. Number two, fulfilled prophecy by Jesus. Number three, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Number four, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that Jesus poured forth after sitting on the right hand of the throne of God. He's giving them a witness. You know, I really like the preaching of the New Testament apostles. They, even if the door was slightly cracked, they saw that as an opportunity. You know, we often look for wide open doors. Like somebody coming up to us and saying, what must I do to be saved? And we think, hmm, I wonder if this is an open door from the Lord. Now, Peter didn't wait for that. They said, what is this fire, wind, and tongue speaking? And he said, well, Joel prophesied about this. And by the way, let me tell you about Jesus. And he says, Jesus was the Messiah, first of all, because of his works. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. He had to make the distinction because Jesus was a common name. Half a dozen kids on the block were named Jesus in those days. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. Now, they'd watched Jesus for three and a half years do all sorts of stuff. They had ample time to make up their mind. Now, remember Nicodemus came to Jesus one time? He said, teacher, we know that you are sent from God for no one can do the miracles that you do unless God is with him. They knew that he knew that the works that Jesus was doing was testifying that God's hand was upon him. Now, Jesus himself said this. I have a greater witness than John the Baptist for the works which the father has given me to finish The very works I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. In another place, Jesus said, If you don't believe what I say, at least believe me for the very works that you see me do. The works of the Messiah, the healings, all of the miracles. At least believe for what you have seen that I have done. And yet... I want to pause for just a moment because miraculous works are not enough proof to authenticate that someone is of God. Is that right? Just because a person can do mighty works and miracles, does that mean necessarily in and of itself that that person's of God? No. Jesus himself said people will come to me in the judgment day and say, Lord, Lord, we have done many wonderful works. Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Works in and of themselves aren't enough. For Jesus said this, false messiahs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, the very elect. Paul said in Second Thessalonians, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs and lying wonders. If we look At the works only of a person, miraculous deeds only of a person. In other words, if we say this person is of God because look at the great things he's doing and the miracles and the signs. 
then we're going to be awfully confused because every major religion has its list of miraculous signs supposedly that have occurred or are occurring. So if you go by the signs alone, you're going to have a problem. Peter knew that. The Jews knew that. In fact, there's a scripture way back in the book of Deuteronomy that gives them a little test. Ever wonder why when you read the Gospels, the Pharisees were so cautious with Jesus? Now, we love Jesus and we're not cautious with him. We trust him. Jesus says something, we go, I believe it. We think those Pharisees, they were, why didn't they believe? Well, a lot of it was a hard heart. A lot of it, however, was caution. For in Deuteronomy, God told them, if there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign and a wonder, and the sign or the wonder of which he spoke comes to pass, and he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That's why the Pharisees and the scribes, he did a work. But they wanted to know, what is the result of these miracles? Will he take us away from the one true God that we've served all these years? And so they hammered him with all sorts of questions. Who are you? Who sent you? Who do you worship exactly? You speak of your father. What do you mean by that? They were cautious at first. So the works and the miracles always had to point to God. When it comes to who is the Messiah, number one, works. The works that Jesus did. But works, as we said, are not enough in and of themselves. We have besides that the prophecies Jesus fulfilled and the resurrection. I had a guy in my office a couple years ago. And he sat down and he said, I am Jesus Christ and I've come again. Now, I didn't get all upset at first. I said, okay, where were you born? He said, I don't know, Canoctico, Oklahoma or something. I said, well, you're, you're not the Messiah. You don't, you don't make it. Are you Jewish? No. Born in Bethlehem? No. Born of a virgin? No, of course not. You're not the Messiah. Because the Messiah, first of all, has works that show that he's the Messiah, but secondly, he has fulfilled prophecy. And of course, Peter quotes several scriptures here in the entire second chapter of Acts. And there are over, as you know, 300 prophecies that would foretell of what the Messiah would do, where he'd be born, what his death would be like, his birth, his nature, his heritage, his country. I've told you before that Professor Peter Stoner of Westmont College gave the odds of one man in history fulfilling eight prophecies and then one man in history fulfilling 48 prophecies and then one man in history fulfilling 60 prophecies. The odds of that, one in ten to the 147th power. In fact, any of you can collect a thousand dollars reward if you can find anyone alive or dead that has fulfilled half of the prophecies that Jesus ever fulfilled. There's an institution that is willing to pay to this day anybody a thousand dollars who can do it. And you know what? The thousand dollars is still there. Nobody's collected yet. So there were the works that Jesus did. 
those Jews were out there thinking, what is this? And Peter said, this is that which Joel spoke about. And let me tell you about Jesus. He was a man attested by God to you because of the works that he did, the signs and the wonders, as you yourselves also know. Now look at verse 23. He speaks about the crucifixion. Him being delivered by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and crucified and put to death. That's an interesting verse. It combines two things. God's plan and purpose. It was God's plan to send Jesus to die. It was by his predetermined counsel and foreknowledge. But then Peter lays the blame on them. He says, you by your wicked or lawless hands have crucified and slain. So on one hand, we see sovereignty of God. On the other hand, we see human responsibility. This was God's predicted plan throughout history. But you're responsible in putting him to death and rejecting him. God holds you responsible. It was a plan from the beginning. It wasn't an emergency plan. When plan A failed, God would decide to enact plan B. The crucifixion was determined by God from the beginning. Jesus was sent into the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The crucifixion wasn't a mistake. It says in Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus came, it pleased the Lord, the Father, to bruise him or to put him to death. It was a plan of God from the beginning. Jesus said, for this reason I came into the world. This is why I was sent. He spoke often of the fact that he was going to the cross, that he would die, that on the third day he would rise again from the dead. And then look in verse 24. Proof number two. Jesus is the Messiah because of the resurrection. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And he quotes Psalm 16, which we read. Now, he quotes something David said, and then he applies it by saying, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he's both dead and buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God swore an oath to him of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Messiah to sit on the throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades or in the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Now, Peter was aware of his audience. They were Jewish They had formed their own ideas of the Messiah because of their literature and their culture. And yes, they would agree with Peter that Jesus fit the description of the Messiah by his works. No one did the works Jesus did. Nicodemus, a member of their ruling council, pointed that out. No one could do these works unless God is with him. However, they were thinking, no doubt... We have a real problem believing that your Jesus is the Jewish Messiah for one simple reason. He died on the cross. Now, Peter points out two things. Number one, his death was predicted, Psalm 16, and his resurrection was also predicted by the very same psalm. And Peter says, now, David said this. This is I I just quoted it to you. This is something David said. But this couldn't refer to David. Because David said, in verse 27, 
You will not leave my soul in the grave, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. He says, uh, uh, gentlemen, this couldn't refer to David because David's long gone. They had his funeral hundreds of years ago, and we still have his tomb right here in Jerusalem that we go to from time to time in the Valley of the Kings. It's been around for a long time. So David couldn't be referring to himself. David must have prophetically spoke of his heir that would sit upon the throne. For back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised a covenant with the house of David that one of his heirs or descendants would reign upon his throne as the Messiah forever and ever. And so he's pointing out that David died, he did see corruption, and that he was speaking of the Messiah who would come again, or who would come, would die, and would be resurrected from the dead. The resurrection is its like one of the major hinges of Christianity. It's not something that's dispensable. It's not something that you can say, well, I believe Jesus came and he died for sins, but I don't believe he literally rose. Because if there's no resurrection, you have no Christianity. And the early preachers knew that, and they always hammered on this one fact. Jesus rose again from the dead, and he's conquered death, and he's alive right now. And he's at the right hand of God the Father. And he's praying for us, and he's coming again. I want you to keep your finger here and turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, do you remember when Jesus died and the reaction of the disciples? The reaction of the disciples was total bewilderment. Their dreams were shattered because they, too, had this concept that the Messiah would be a warrior who would rid them of all of their foreign rulers, would bring the Jews to the pinnacle of authority in the world, and would reign from Mount Zion. And now he's just dead. He just died. They rolled the tomb over, or the stone over his tomb, and all of their hopes went with it. They're totally, totally wiped out. And you can pick up on that on the two, when they're going on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus comes up and said, why are you so sad? And they said, oh, Jesus of Nazareth. You know, people said he was a prophet and the Messiah, but he's dead. We hoped, past tense, in him. Their hope was dead. They had no hope anymore. But Jesus, before this whole event, he foretold it quite often. He said to the disciples, you know, there's going to come a time and I'm going to leave and you are going to be sad because I'm gone. But then your sorrow will be turned into joy. And they couldn't figure out what he was talking about. But the day that he resurrected... And the day that he appeared to his disciples in that upper room, once again, it says they were glad or they rejoiced when they saw Jesus. And from that moment on, a change occurred, a radical change in their lives. They were bold. They were themselves again, only with more power. Because for them, a dead Messiah did nothing. A resurrected Messiah proved that he was the Messiah. Now listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Read it with me. 
if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain or useless, and your faith is also useless. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, that is, we're liars, if he didn't rise from the dead, because we testified of God that he raised up Christ. You see, they were witnesses of it. They said, we saw him, he rose from the dead. He said, if Christ didn't rise, then we're liars. Whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. In other words, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, Paul says, then all of the pagans are right in saying that it's utter foolishness for us to be Christians. Why go through the trials and the persecution during this life, all of the suffering, if there is no hope of the resurrection? Because Jesus rose, we're going to rose, we're going to rise. We're going to rose and we're going to rise. Both of those things are equally important. Because He did, we will, and we'll see His face. Otherwise, this is a joke. Our Christian life is a joke. If we just have hope only in this life, then it's a shallow hope. We are of all men most pitiable. So Christianity rises and falls upon the resurrection. In fact, Christianity is the only world religion that claims an empty tomb for its founder. All of the others are based upon the teachings of a founder, And the only thing that person, the one who founded the religion, left behind, his only legacy was the religious system that he left for his followers. Christianity claims the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive now, not just back then, now. And he's doing a great work through us today. And we can call on him because he's alive. It marks a great dividing line between every other belief system. Christianity does because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now listen to what a biblical scholar named Wilbur Smith once said. From the first day of its divinely bestowed life, the Christian church has unitedly borne testimony to its faith in the resurrection of Christ. It is what we may call one of the great fundamental doctrines and convictions of the church And it so penetrates the literature of the New Testament that if you lifted out every passage in which a reference is made to the resurrection, you would have a collection of writings so mutilated that what remained could not be understood. The resurrection entered intimately into the life of the earliest Christians. The fact of it appears on their tombs, in their drawings found on the walls of the catacombs. It entered deeply into Christian hymnology. It became one of the most vital themes of the great apostolic writings of the first four centuries. It was the theme constantly dwelt upon in the preaching of the anti-Nicene and post-Nicene period. It entered at once into the creedal formula of the church. It is our apostles' creed. It is the great creed of all creeds. Now, Jesus spoke of his death and resurrection always together. 
You know, I have tried to count the times when Jesus got his disciples together and said, now listen closely, gang, here's the game plan. The Son of Man is going to Jerusalem, as it was determined, and he'll be handed over to sinful men, and he will be killed, and on the third day he will rise again. And the scripture after that says, and they were all sorrowful. They heard the first part, but not the second part. He's going to rise again. Oh, that's too bad. Hey, dummy, did you hear that? I'm going to rise from the dead. He always spoke of his death and resurrection together, yet it seems the disciples did not, they did not pick up on it until after he rose from the dead. And it came to them, oh, I remember, that's right, he did say something about rising again. Now, doesn't it make sense that if someone comes on the scene and predicts with detail and accuracy in advance, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me, and the third day I'll get up from the grave alive. Doesn't it make sense that if somebody predicted it to that degree of his own self, and it happened that he rose from the dead, that every single thing else he'd ever said is true? And nobody can match that. And so, men of Israel, proof number one, the works that you have seen him perform for three and a half years. Number two, he rose from the dead. He got up from the grave. We're eyewitnesses of that. And it's prophesied in the scripture. As Jews, although you would say he can't be the Messiah, he's dead. He's not dead. He died, yes, prophesied by the scripture. But he rose again according to the scripture. And he's now at the right hand of God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've always loved the story of Frank Morrison, a British trial lawyer who knew that Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection. And he said, you know what? There's going to come a day when I'm going to have time from my busy schedule as a lawyer and I'm going to write a book. I'm going to uncover once and for all the hoax of the resurrection and I'm going to spread it throughout the world. Because these Christians are believing a pipe dream. Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead. He was an honest man. He was a good scholar. He did his homework. And the day finally came when he had the opportunity to compile his information, do his studies, and he wrote a book indeed. But the book was called Who Moved the Stone? And chapter number one was called The Book That Was Never Written. He became a Christian in the process of compiling the information, and it was so overwhelming to him. The fact, the proofs of the resurrection that he bowed his knee and gave his life to Jesus Christ, whom he was convinced of was still alive because he rose from the dead. Christianity rises and falls on that. Now look back in Acts. It says in verse 33, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. He poured out the Holy Spirit, which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Uh, that's a verse of scripture that Jesus quoted to the religious leaders. And it is something that he posed a question to them, this very scripture. 
And it so stumped them, they couldn't figure it out. It did not fit within the narrow channels of their theology that they just didn't answer it. Now, look at that scripture one more time. The Lord, that is the Lord God, spoke to my Lord. This is David saying, the Lord God spoke to my Lord. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Would you turn over to Matthew chapter 22? Verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they gave the right Jewish answer. The son of David. He said to them, How then, if that's true, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? saying, the Lord, that is Jehovah or Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, which is always spoken of the Lord God, the Creator. How is it that David called him Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. You know what he's saying? He's saying, if the Messiah, the son of David, is just a son of David, just a human being, then why is it that David ascribed deity to him by calling him Adonai? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. If David then calls him Adonai, Lord, how is he his son? Now notice, and they should have answered that. If they would have been honest and gone through their scriptures, the answer is simply, well, he's the son of David in the flesh, He's the Son of God, God in human flesh, born of a virgin. That's how the answer, that's how it is. That's how he can be the Son of David and be the Lord. Verse 46, and no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. That was the stumper to stump everything else. They couldn't figure that one out. And they said, you know what? Don't ask this guy any questions. Because if we're to answer that, we're going to blow our whole theology of who the Messiah is supposed to be. Because the Lord calls the Messiah, the son of David, the Lord, my Lord. How do you explain the empty tomb? Simple explanation. Jesus rose again from the dead. Took his disciples by surprise when he did. He definitely died. He rose again from the dead. And yet people today, and people back then, have many explanations to the resurrection. Of course, in those days, there was a circulating rumor that said somebody stole the body of Jesus. The disciples stole the body of Jesus while everyone was asleep. Now, could that be true? seeing that the disciples were scaredy cats. It says in the New Testament they had locked the doors in an upper room. They were so scared because of the Jews, they thought, we're next. The disciples were in no mood to tromps off to the tomb and overtake a Roman guard between 10 and 30 well-armed soldiers of the Roman government with spears and shields and knock them off and steal the body. Moreover, the tomb was sealed with clay packs and a rope. It was called a Roman seal. 
Pilate said, set a seal on the tomb and make it secure. To break a Roman seal meant death automatically. And some say, well, I understand that, but probably what happened is they, while the soldiers were sleeping, the disciples came and stole them away. Well, is that possible, seeing that if a Roman soldier sleeps on his post, setting a guard, that his punishment is death? And that if you're a Roman soldier and you let your buddy sleep, that you die too? And let's say they slept anyway. They were just too exhausted. They did overtime. They were on second shift. They were doing graveyard shift, no pun intended. And let's say they were sleeping. Don't you think that men moving a two-ton stone would make a bit of noise, at least enough to wake you up? Second explanation is, well, the Jews stole the body so that the disciples couldn't do it and claim a resurrection. Well, that's silly, because the moment the Jews came through Jerusalem and said, He's risen, they would take the body, put it on a cart, wheel it through the middle of Jerusalem, wipe out Christianity forever. Jews didn't steal the body. And then, and I love this one, the wrong tomb theory. That, well, the, the tomb got mixed up. The women, since Jerusalem is filled with tombs, and it is true, there are rock crevices everywhere in the city where they bury their dead. It was early in the morning. These women were emotional, hysterical. The light isn't good. The shadows aren't out yet. And they met a man. And they said they were looking for Jesus, and he pointed to the tomb. They went to the wrong tomb, an empty one instead of the one the guy pointed to. And the whole thing is they just went to the wrong place. Well, let's suppose that's true. That means the women went to the wrong tomb, the disciples went to the wrong tomb, the Romans went to the wrong tomb, and the Jews went to the wrong tomb. And don't you think someone would eventually stumble on the right thing because they were they saw where he was buried and pull out the body and say, no, you guys had the wrong tomb. Here's his body. It's still there. Proof positive. Habeas corpus produced the body. And if no one knew, all they have to do is ask Joseph of Arimathea. It was his garden. Couldn't have been the wrong tomb. There's another theory that's uh, equally as funny. It's called the swoon theory. It says Jesus never died. He fainted on the cross. They thought he was dead. They took him off of the cross. They put him in the damp, cool tomb, which during the springtime of the year in Israel is very refreshing. And the dampness and the coolness of the tomb revived Jesus. And he was able to get out and announce his resurrection. The disciples saw him. It's foolish if you know anything about death by crucifixion. The agony that Jesus went through. Study up on crucifixion, there's no way you could say that. Because you remember they put a spear in his side to prove his death. And blood and water flowed out to prove that he was dead. Should we break his legs? No! They stuck a spear in his side. He's dead already. And don't you think after all of that agony that it's impossible to be inside of a tomb and unwrap bandages that are tightly bound around your ankles all the way around your body up to your neck? 
You can't even move your arms in that thing. How are you going to unravel it? And there was probably a hundred pounds of spices and fluid around him to encase him as part of the burying method of the Jews. And let's say he could miraculously get out of the bindings. Do you think after having scars in his feet, nails in his hands, being fatigued from the cross, that he's going to walk two and a half, four miles to Emmaus? Then there's the hallucination theory. The disciples were so emotionally distraught, and at the time that Peter gave this in the book of Acts, he really believed he saw Jesus. I mean, he's so bold before the audience in Acts chapter 2, he hallucinated. He was emotionally keyed up. It was a stressful time in his life. And, you know, people at stressful times think they hear things, think they see things. It's very, it's very quite common. Hallucinations. only problem with that is the Scripture points out that not just Peter, Peter and John, the rest of the disciples, even Thomas, who didn't believe a word, he was the man from Missouri, the show-me state. Show me or I won't believe that he rose from the dead. Jesus appeared and said, Peter, put your fingers in these nail prints and in my side and see that I'm risen from the dead. And not only that, but the Scripture says that over 500 at one time in Corinthians, 500 at one time saw him risen. Now, hallucinations could occur, but they don't occur collectively. You don't have 500 people at one time seeing the very same thing unless there is some semblance of reality to it. The easiest answer in examining the evidence, according to Frank Morris, who wrote, Who Moved the Stone, is Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And the disciples, Peter, on the book, in the, in the uh, book of Acts, chapter 2, Jesus is the Messiah because of the miracles. Jesus is the Messiah because he fulfills Scripture. Jesus is your Messiah because he rose from the dead. It was prophesied in Scripture. We saw him. And not only that, they died for that fact. They died for that fact. And that perhaps is the greatest evidence of the resurrection. Twelve men were martyred. Almost all of them. At least eleven were. Because they believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Now let's say... Let's just say they stole the body. And let's just say they made a pact and said, look, we've invested three and a half years into this myth. Let's go all the way with this. He said he'd rise. Let's go along with it. Let's stage a resurrection. Now, we're going to make a pact. We're blood brothers on this, you guys. You can't think on any of us. And you have to always say, even if they beat you up, even if they stick nails in your body and crucify you upside down and pour hot tar on you, that he rose from the dead. Got it? Yeah, no problem, man, no problem. (laughs) Now, in what we know about torture that they've done in many of the wars, if you took 12 people who were believing a lie, one of them, during adverse circumstances, got a break if it's fake. You'd think that one of them would say, no, please, this isn't worth dying and being tortured for because they died martyrs' deaths, believing Jesus rose from the dead. And then finally, Peter applies it. He says in verse 36, Therefore, he's wrapping up his sermon, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Mashiach, Messiah. 
Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. You know why that message cut to the heart? Because it answered all of their rationalizations. Jesus can't be the Messiah because he died. Well, it was prophesied. Well, so it was prophesied. Where's the Messiah? Well, it was also prophesied that he rose from the dead, and he did. When they heard this message, they were cut to the heart, conviction. And they said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, or the apostles, men and brethren, what must we do? Now listen to his answer. Peter said to them, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you, to your children, and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. They were convicted. Now what do we do? Peter didn't say, well, I want you to join our church. And before you join our church, there's a list of things that you can't do first. Can't drink, can't smoke, can't chew. Can't go to movies, at least these kind. You know what he said? He said, repent. It just kind of sums everything up. What what should we do? Repent. And it says, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Repentance has become a very non-popular word. When you think of repentance, it conjures up in your mind thoughts of medieval monks flogging themselves, torturing themselves in sackcloth and ashes, or Old Testament prophets tearing their garments, and that's repentance. Repentance is a word that means a change of direction or a change of mind. It's where you think differently, you change your heart the way you believe about something, and then your actions follow along with that decision you've just made. That's what repentance means. Does it mean you afflict yourselves? It means you haven't believed that Jesus has been your Messiah all of these years, that he's worked miracles among you, the fact that he rose from the dead, but now you need to change that attitude. You need a heart change. Repent. And then identify with him in baptism for the remission of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Any amount of church membership, baptism, rituals, religious phrases, cannot make up for that one word, repentance. You see, and a lot of people do it backwards. They get baptized. Forget the repentance. What must I do to be a Christian? Well, I'll I'll get baptized first. I'll join a church. I'll go to all their Bible studies or masses or rituals, whatever. That's how I'm going to change. Unless there's a heart change, there really is no change. The heart must always change first because repentance speaks of a change within. Baptism, church membership, and rituals speak of changing your activities, which always and must always follow a change of heart first. Repent and then be baptized. It doesn't say be baptized and repent. And be careful that you don't always link those two together. In fact, it says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, which could be better translated on the basis of the remission of sins. It's not that you're baptized and the baptism wipes away sins. It's the repentance, which is belief in Jesus Christ, turning from what you know displeases God, turning to him by faith. And you get baptized on the basis of 
your sins being forgiven. Look over at chapter 3 for just a moment. Verse 19. He says, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that the time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. He said nothing there about baptism. Baptism doesn't save a person. But, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I've always had trouble with a person who says, I'm a Christian, but I'm not into the baptism thing. I've never been baptized. I don't think it's important. I have problems with that. Because if you have been changed, you're going to want to identify with the Lord and obey Him. And you know, John the Baptist preached a baptism of repentance, didn't he? His whole ministry was revolved around repentance and people were baptized. And the first word that Jesus uttered in his public ministry was, Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. After that comes baptism, but you're not saved because of it. Repent and then be baptized. Now, did you notice who he's saying repent to? Religious people. Religious Jews. Keepers of the law. People who knew the scriptures. You know that religious people need repentance? And we don't often think of that, do we? We think, well, you know, repentance is for people who are worse than I am. I mean, bad folks need repentance. The murderers need repentance. The people who do crimes against society, the rapists, they need repentance. Jesus told the religious people, you need repentance. Jesus told Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Peter told these religious Jews to repent. And you know, one of the hardest things to do is to speak and preach the gospel to a very religious person. It's got to be the hardest preaching there is to convince a religious person that they need to repent of their sins because a religious person thinks he's fine. A person who's religious has set up a standard. This is my religion, and here's my standard. And once I meet all of the criterion for the standard that I have set up or agree to, then I'm righteous. Hence, to be poor in spirit is almost impossible unless God really breaks their heart. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, poverty stricken spiritually. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. That's repentance. It's very difficult, though, isn't it, for some people who are very religious, but they need repentance. Now, Back to that whole thing we started out with. Actions. The book of Acts. Peter was a normal fisherman. Didn't go to seminary, but he studied Jesus who was in his presence. He was very timid in many ways. He was very impetuous and bold in other ways. He had insecurities. He had all sorts of flaws and faults, like just about everybody else in the Bible. But we see him standing up and getting involved in being used by God. There's a guy by the name of William Booth started Salvation Army. And he decided that there was a whole group of people that society really wasn't reaching out to, the Christian society. And that that was the street people. And so he decided that he would use modern music to do it. He'd take out the street organ, and a drum. And he'd march through the large cities of the country banging on this drum and playing this music. And the average church person stood on the side and condemned William Booth. 
saying, that's devil music. It's that hard, loud music that they're using to preach that that's wrong. Really got down on William Booth for it. The church at large castigated him because of the music and the method, while the whole time the average church member was sitting on the pew doing nothing. Here's a guy who dared to write another chapter in the book of Acts, not in the book of theory. They were theorizing. He was doing it. And he said something. As all of the people, the church people, were castigating him, and he was preaching the gospel, he said, Not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. And then look Christ in the face, whose mercy you have professed to obey, and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstances in the march to publish his mercy to the world. Well, that says it like it is. The book of Acts... That's what we're called to. And as we study it, my prayer is that I personally would be motivated to model or to practice what I see modeled by the early church, at least in the areas that are good. There are some of the areas we don't want to model them. I pray that this in-depth study in the book of Acts would open up our hearts to how they presented Jesus to people the central message that the Scripture was sufficient, that they were ordinary people, but that they were active. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have spent a little bit of time putting our ear to Your Word tonight. And we've listened to the sermon of Peter. We see him boldly stand in front of thousands of people, people he doesn't know. Something that he would never have done before, but two things changed his life the resurrection, and the Holy Spirit invading him. Lord, I pray that that awesome truth that Jesus Christ at this very moment is alive and well would strike a chord in our hearts. Because you have done through your apostles in the book that we are just reading tremendous things in their lives. Jesus was doing them. And we want to be among the ranks of people who are used by you today. We know that you have a plan for this world, and you have a specific plan for this community and this city. And we live here, thus we want to be a part of your flow. What is it that you are doing, and how is it that we can get involved and active? Not in theory, not in ideas, but in being real witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to a hurting world today. In Jesus' name, amen.